Blessed are you, O Lord, teach us your statutes. With our lips we declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies we delight as much as in all riches. So help us to meditate on your precepts and fix our eyes on your ways. Then we will delight in your statutes and we will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servants that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your scriptures. Foremost among them, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4. If you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series through the book of Micah, and we've come to chapter 4 and beginning our reading at verse 9 and reading through the end of the chapter. Micah chapter 4, beginning our reading at verse 9. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished, that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There... You shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in, many, in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, well, we've been considering our way through chapter 4 and, and come to the end of chapter 4, and one of the things that we notice as we begin chapter 4 is that it looks at a day far away, um, in, a, in the latter days, in the days that are coming, um, and looks forward to the wonderful promises that we've been talking about, the new Jerusalem, the glory of the former dominion being restored to God's people. Um, we've talked about how that presents to us something of a picture of what's, what's happening, and God is filling in the picture. Uh, we've, we use the image of a puzzle, remember, boys and girls, where we're, you start with the outside and you work your way to filling the picture. Um, and so one of the things that God does to help us fill the picture is not just to give us the picture of what's coming in the future, but to illuminate the pathway of how that will come to be. Um, sometimes we look at the great promises that God makes and we look at our present circumstances and ask the question, how are we going to get from there to there from here? Um, how will we ever get to those great things? Those great things sound great, but we seem very far away. Um, and God is going to reveal to his people in this passage something of the pathway that leads to the promise. How God is going to promise to work in what he does. 
We're moving from those latter days that are far, far away to those days that are closer to a more immediate future. Um, and that signaled to us twice by the use of the word now. Um, how God's people can think about these wonderful promises given where they are now. And what God wants his people to understand is that he, as their king, is going to deliver them, but he's going to deliver them through difficulty. And that despite the difficulty that's coming, his promise is sure that he will deliver them through the difficulty into the glory he's promised. That God is with them as their king to work for them and to bring them through to glory. And so what is the work that God promises to do as we see it unfolding in this passage. Well, God, as their king, he promises that he will redeem the captives, that he will frustrate the enemies, and that he will empower the conquerors. Uh, that's what God promises to do for his people as their king and as their counselor, to redeem the captives, to frustrate the enemies, and to empower the conquerors. Uh, that's how these verses unfold for us. Uh, Micah opens this particular scene in his prophecy in verse 9 um, with a powerful picture, a picture of a woman in labor. That brings a, a vivid picture to our mind, um, maybe for some of you a more vivid picture than for, the, for some others of us, um, a, a picture of, of childbearing, being in the midst of, of crying out in the pains of childbirth. That's, that's what Micah says that our current, our current situation sounds like in the city. People are crying out in anguish, like the anguish of a woman in labor. Um, it's, a very, it's a very vivid picture. Um, and and it, it's a vivid kind of stark movement from all of the glories he's been looking forward to to now this, this present distress, this cry that's going up from God's people. Uh, the harsh reality of the difficulty that they are facing now. Um, this cry that is going up among the city um, from these things. And Micah sort of has a, a poignant question uh, that, he, that, he, that he brings, a sort of rebuking question in verse 9. Do we as God's people have a reason to be crying out the way we are? Are we in serious trouble? You know, Micah says, to hear you crying out would make one think that we have no king, and that our counselor has perished. Is that the situation that we are in? Um, the way he asks the question, he expects the answer, of course not. Right, of course not. Now, this kind of reminded me of a, a scene from the life of Martin Luther, where he, was, he would go through bouts of depression, and he went through a pretty serious bout of depression, and he had tried to go and take some time off just to kind of recover, but he, he came back still depressed, and when he walked in the house, the story goes, his wife was all dressed in black. And when he saw her all dressed in mourning clothes, he thought, well, someone has died. And he said, well, who, who's died? And she said, well, I'm assuming God is dead, given the way you're walking around upset all the time. I mean, because surely if there was a God in whom we trust who was still alive, you wouldn't be acting the way you're acting. God must be dead. Um, and then he kind of came to his senses and said, you know, sort of laughed and said, okay, I get your point. Right. She knew that God wasn't dead. Um, it, it was a way of illustrating to him, you're acting as if the God in whom you can trust is no longer there. Right. Isn't God still a mighty fortress? 
Um, and that's sort of what Micah is saying. Do we have a reason to be crying out the way we're crying out? Are we a people without a king? Do we no longer have a counselor? Someone who can not only plan but do everything he plans for his people? Is that what we've come to? Is there a reason for us to be crying out this way? Of course not. The Lord is king. The Lord is our counselor. The Lord brings to pass everything he decides to do. There's no reason for us to cry out um, as if we're in this kind of distress. And so he then takes that metaphor and picks it up and carries it forward and says, you know, if you are in that kind of distress, if you think you're like a woman in childbearing, then writhe and bring forth. Deliver that child. Um, Push through. Uh, Because this is going to be the way of God working in his people. God's people need to understand that this does not mean the pain we're going through, the hardness of what we're going through, does not mean there is no plan, does not mean there is no comfort, does not mean there is no king, does not mean there is no counselor. That the present circumstances do not mean God is no longer in control. The present circumstances do not mean that the world has come off of its rails. God is still working. Um, And God is calling us to push through the difficulty. um, And push through the difficulty to the time of joy. So that's what we understand about childbearing. There is great pain, there is great difficulty, but it's it's producing something. The pain and the difficulty is not all that's there. There's a goal on the other side. In fact, it's not just pain and difficulty. It, it leads to joy. That's the result that's on the other side. That a time of, of difficulty will lead to a time of joy. And that's what Mike is doing by picking up this metaphor and saying... That's that's the condition of God's people in the world. We have to push through the difficulty knowing that the joy is on the other side. And Micah's saying, I'm not not gonna sugarcoat for you. There is real difficulty. Um, And Micah's even saying, through the eyes of the Holy Spirit, gives him into the future. And if you think things are difficult now, things are going to be worse. You know, Calvinist comfort is to say, cheer up, things could be worse. Uh, Micah comes with a much more unpopular message of saying things are going to get worse. Um, He sees the future that's over 100 years distant from them, but he says, you know, there is a time coming when we are going to experience a time of great pain and difficulty. Where, Where he sees the exile that's coming at the hands of the Babylonians. Right, he says that in the second part of verse 10. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. He's seeing that coming, even though it's over 100 years in the future. He sees what's coming, and he he expresses it in a way that makes it worse and worse. You're going to be expelled from your city. That's bad. You'll have to make your home in the open country which was a dangerous place to be. 
Right? This isn't like a nice camping trip, boys and girls. This is to be exposed out in the open country, a dangerous place. You're exposed to the weather. You're exposed to wild animals. It's not a place you want to stay. And there they will go, out of their city, into the country, and finally into exile, into captivity in Babylon. This is a warning to God's people. There is a time of great pain and difficulty coming. That, that is the lot of life in this world. There is that pain and captivity, but that's not all there is. That's the point that he's making. It's not a pain and difficulty with no point or no purpose. Just like the pain of childbirth that goes through and brings forth a time of joy, so also God is going to use this time of pain and difficulty to give forth to a time of joy. Right, that the cry of distress is going to be replaced by the cry of deliverance. Because the, the, notice how it takes a radical turn in verse 10 when we consider Babylon. Right? We, we are going to, be, you're going to go out from the city, dwell in the open country, you shall go to Babylon, and there you shall be. What might we expect there? There you shall be enslaved. There you shall be captive. There you shall be suffering. But notice how it takes a radical turn. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. The Micah is saying this is the way God has always worked. Through difficulty and suffering, he brings forth Joy. Through difficulty and suffering, he brings forth joy. That was what was told all the way at the beginning in the garden. When Adam and Eve had committed that first sin and fallen, what was the, what was the prediction for the future? You know, we sometimes say it was the prediction that the, the head of the serpent would be crushed. And that's part of it. That's the glorious good news that's there, Right? The first announcement of the good news is someone's going to come who's going to crush the head of the serpent. But what else is said there? That in the process, his heel is going to be bruised. Right there at the beginning, there was the promise of victory through suffering. Of overcoming through difficulty. That the destruction of evil doesn't happen without a fight. That the deliverance of God's people does not happen in a damage-free environment. It's a hard-won and a hard-fought salvation. And that picture all the way at Genesis 3.15 at the beginning was fulfilled in our Lord on the cross, where we saw what it meant that his heel would be bruised. We saw what that meant for him. As he went as an innocent victim to the cross, to lay down his life for sin and suffered his blessed body to be broken there to save sinners and his precious blood to be poured out as a ransom for many. That was difficult, far more difficult than we can imagine. It was awful, far more awful than we can imagine. 
but it produced something. Right? That was not the end of the story. It was difficult and awful, but it came to an end. There was a time when it was finished. When all that was necessary was done, and he committed his soul into the hands of his Father, and our Lord laid down his life for sinners. And then it was over. Then the time of difficulty and suffering was done. It had accomplished what meant what it needed to accomplish. It had offered the sacrifice that takes away sin. And what happened through that time of pain and difficulty, a time of great joy began. The world was forever altered at that moment. As has been said, it was the end of the beginning and the beginning of the end. That's what happened when Jesus rose again from the dead. That was a sign. Everything has changed in the world. The time of evil does not have the last word. There's an unconquerable life now that reigns. That this has the last word. This life. This indestructible, incorruptible, eternal life. Where the mortal had been swallowed up with what lives. That was the new order that came into the world. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to us that that's still the order of things. That great joy comes through great difficulty. That God is still delivering his people through the difficulty into the promise of glory to come. Right? That, that was the message of the apostles as they went about in the world. Through tribulations, the kingdom comes. If we want to be like Jesus, we have to pick up the cross and follow him. Who's he who seeks to gain his life must lose it. Right? Not a great marketing scheme. But he's not trying to sell you something. He's telling you the truth. This is the truth. It was true for our Lord. It's true for us. A time of difficulty, yes. But it brings forth a time of joy. It brings forth a time of deliverance. It brings forth a time of redemption. That's the, com- that's the comforting promise. That this pain is accomplishing something. It's bringing something forth. It's not pointless. And that's what Micah is trying to, to communicate to his brothers and sisters. No matter how bad things get, don't forget that God has a plan. That God is producing something through this. That God will bring this to fruition. Just like a woman in childbirth is brought through the pain into the joy of having the child. When it's over, something new has come. Right? Something new has come. That's the promise that Micah gives to his people. That's the promise that God gives to us. That there's a time coming when we will be taken out of that Sphere of distress in which we live. Right? We don't have to worry about an actual Babylonian captivity, but we know that in Scripture, Babylon has come to stand for every hostile power. Right? As one commentator put it, is 
it, Babylon has come to represent the stronghold of pagan political and religious strength in the world. It's the anti-Jerusalem. I like that. It's the anti-Jerusalem. It represents everything that God's city doesn't. And you can, Babylon can be a literal Babylon, or Babylon can be Rome in Peter's day, or Babylon can be whatever else God's people experience in this world. All of God's people know a Babylon. An anti-Jerusalem that is out to destroy God's people and God's city. Um, but every one of God's children in Jerusalem can be assured by this same promise. From there, the Lord will rescue you. From there, the Lord will deliver you. He has not forgotten his promise. His arm has not grown too short to save. God will redeem the captives and rescue them, deliver them, and set them free. God wants to assure his people of that promise, that his plan has not failed. He says, and I want you to be assured of that because I know that my enemies are planning against you. Right? That, that's the second prophecy that starts in, in verse 11, that there are many nations that are assembled against God's people. It's a, it's a second prophecy that very much mirrors the pattern of the first one that we looked at, but God, God wants his people to understand that he's well aware of what they face in this world, that he knows that there are many people plotting against him, and he wants his people to know that they still have a wonderful king, a mighty counselor working for them, who is planning even as our enemies are planning. Because Babylon never stops planning evil for God's people. We see that in verse 11. When the many nations that are gathered and assembled against you are saying, let her be defiled, let our eyes gaze upon Zion. Right, it's a frightening picture. It's many enemies surrounding God's people, mighty nations, hostile to the truth, and they want nothing more than to see Zion defiled. Now, in that time, if you wanted to defile a place... It usually meant going into somebody's temple because every temple had a, a, a secret enclosure, you know, where only the priests were allowed to go. And so when you wanted to defile a temple, you tore down the walls, you tore down the curtains, and you would say, now you can just look right at it. Um, it was sort of a way of making what was holy common, what was making it holy profane. And, and that's what you would do with any kind of temple. And that's what people want to do to God's temple. To tear it down, tear down the walls, tear down the curtains, expose that holy place, and see that holy place isn't so holy after all. In fact, it's pretty common. That's what they want. They want it to be torn down. They want to make something holy, something profane. They have a plan for evil. And that's when, it, when we're reminded of the wonderful truth of God's word. When God comes and says, here they are, arrayed in their might, arrayed in their evil purpose, planning evil for my people. But what don't they understand? God says, they don't understand that I'm planning too. They're plotting and scheming. I'm plotting and planning. I'm not, I'm, they're not the only ones making plans for what's going to happen. I'm making plans for what are, what's going to happen. 
And the difference between the two plans is I actually can establish my plan, God says. My counsel actually stands at the end of the day. You can think of Psalm 33, 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. See, his enemies think that they are going to triumph by their might. But what does God say? They don't really know my plan. They think they've gathered to lay my people low. Actually, I've gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Um, Now, most of us are not farmers, and even if we did farm, we probably wouldn't farm and need a threshing floor. Um, So maybe that's an image that we don't understand, but boys and girls, a a threshing floor was an open space that was hard or rocky, and you would take sheaves of grain that you had cut down and you would put it down on the floor, and if you just had a little bit of grain, you might beat it with a, with a stick or a flail to try to separate the kernels from the husk. If you had a lot of grain, you would take an animal and run the animal over to do that or have a, thres- a threshing sledge that the animal would pull behind it with iron studs, and it would crush the grain against the hard ground. That's what the whole picture here is of mashing the grain into the ground. And that's what God is saying. They think they've come here to lay me low. Actually, what, what, have I, what, have I, what have I done with them? I've gathered them together so that I can crush them down. I've gathered, I've gathered them together like sheaves for the threshing floor. See, they don't know. They don't know what serious trouble they're in because they don't understand his plan. This is something Babylon never understands about God's plan. This is something Babylon never understands about God's people. Babylon always thinks, I can tear it down and be left to do what I want to do. One commentator put it this way, when nations see themselves as the center of history and seek a destiny that fulfills their power, they can tolerate no Zion. They are gripped with a compelling need to destroy whatever stands in judgment and restraint on their pride. That's what Babylon tried to do to the Lord Jesus Christ. He stood in the way of the world. The world wanted to go its own way. Jesus said they hate the light because they really like the darkness. So in the darkness you can do whatever you want and no one questions it. But when the light shines in, you're forced to ask those hard questions you don't have answers to. The light exposes the wickedness for what it is. What Babylon has always wanted is no Zion in the world. So I can do my own thing without that restraining influence. And Babylon has always thought there's some way to tear Zion down so that I don't have to deal with it anymore. And the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ was the great picture of that. Of Zion, of Zion standing in all its power in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and Babylon standing in all its hatred against him. The world arrayed against him. Spiritual powers standing against him. Right, the, the full might of the devil's final push 
Here he is, the king of Zion. We can put him down and we'll be forever rid of him. That's why you can hear the hiss of the serpent behind everything that's done at the cross of Jesus Christ. We'll be able to tear him down and that will be it. And what does God come back and say? You have no idea of what I'm planning. You have no idea that this king of glory, you can't take his life. He'll lay it down for his people. But he has the authority to lay it down and to pick it up again. No one takes it from him. You can't kill the king of glory. If he lays down his life, he does it for a purpose. And that's when, that's the comfort that comes to God's people. When Babylon's done its worst, it's only done exactly what God planned it to do. It's right in keeping with his plan. That was the glory of, of the prayer that the saints offered, the prayers that the saints offered in Acts 4, reflecting on the greatness of our God and of his plan. They say in Acts 4, 27 and 28, For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Babylon can plot, but it's still all part of Zion's plan. They think they've gathered to destroy Zion, They've been gathered by the king of Zion to be destroyed. And God says, I will frustrate my enemies and then I will empower my conquerors. So when they've been gathered together to the threshing floor, what's left to be done? Well, now it's time to thresh. And that's what God calls his people to do. Um, Arise and thresh, verse 13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. Um, Now is the time for you to enact my judgment against these mighty nations. How are they going to have the power to do that? You might say, how how are they supposed to go out and thrash them? How are they supposed to go out and grind them down, all these mighty nations? Well, God says, I'm going to empower you to thresh. I'm going to make you the kind of threshers that the world has never seen. I'm going to give you horns of iron and hooves of bronze so that you can smash that grain. Um, animals would sometimes walk over the grain, and, but they didn't have hooves of bronze to do it. And they didn't have horns of iron to do it. Um, this is a picture of a of a fighting bull in unconquerable might that God is giving here. Maybe boys and girls, you've seen nature videos of lions trying to hunt water buffalo, and they try to they always try to come up behind them because the water buffalo have these big horns, and they'll turn around and try to get the lions the horns. And even lions are afraid of their horns. But those water buffaloes don't have horns of iron. God is giving a picture here of horns of iron, hooves of bronze. Hard hooves that can smash. And that's what God wants them to do. He wants them to smash the nations until they are pulverized. You shall beat in pieces many people, pulverized, grind them into dust. That's the, 
That's the call. Grind them till there's nothing left. Crush them out the way they wanted to crush you out. There's a perfect justice in this. It's not revenge. It's justice. What they wanted to do is being done to them. And it's just because they are an evil people. Right? With all the horrors that are, that are talked about in Babylon and Revelation, when it talks about Babylon being destroyed, it pictures the people of God cheering for the destruction of Babylon. And we might say, isn't that kind of unseemly to be cheering for the destruction of Babylon? But we're told, why do they cheer for its destruction? Because they say it's what they deserve. It's justice. It's not harm that God's people are cheering for. It's justice that they're cheering for. That God is showing justice. And, and even with this picture of this people being pulverized into dust, we're reminded that this is what they deserve. We're told at the end of verse 13, you shall devote their gain to the Lord. That word for gain is unjust gain, illegal gain. They're the ones who have always profited off the backs of other people. And now their gain is going to be destroyed. Um, they're to devote it to destruction. That's what God says. Uh, devoting to destruction is that command that was given God, God would give his people when they were to go to holy war against someone. Devote it to destruction. Destroy it utterly. Burn it to the ground. And, the, and we, we sometimes look at that and say, it's awful. It's meant to be awful. It's meant to be a picture of final judgment. Of God's final judgment being executed on sinners. And that's why you weren't allowed to take any of the plunder away from cities like that because you, it was your way of saying, this is all the Lord's power that has conquered. The glory is all his. The plunder is all his because the power was all his. It's a sobering picture we're given here. That the only one who stands at the end of the day is the people of God and the Lord of the people. The only one who stands at the end of the day is the Lord of the whole earth and those he's empowered to conquer. There's no one else left. Everyone else has been beaten into dust. Why does God give us pictures like this? So that we would remember them. So that if we're opposed to the kingdom of God, we would remember this picture. So that we would know what's coming if we remain opposed to the kingdom of God. There's a judgment coming that no one can withstand. There's a judgment coming that no one can stand. It's a warning to all unbelievers that there is a judgment coming and no one can stand in that judgment except those who are protected by the king who put their faith and trust in him. It's a warning. And it calls everyone who hears this warning to seek the only path of escape. Um, repentance for your sins, faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to escape the wrath to come. There's nothing you can do to contribute to your salvation. There's nothing you can do to escape the judgment that's coming, but put your faith and trust in Christ. This picture is a warning. 
It's also a reminder that there is a way of escape that the Lord has provided. And he says, as awful as this picture is, there's no reason for you to fall under this judgment. There's no reason for you to be pulverized because the king has promised, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's a reminder to the wicked. It's a picture for them to remember. It's also a picture for the people of God to remember. For those who are on the Lord's side. For those who are struggling as citizens of Zion living in Babylon. As strangers and sojourners. So that when you feel like the world is pressing in around you with all of its malice and hate. And when we feel weak and powerless as the church. To be remembered that there is a God in heaven who is plotting against all those who are planning against us. But there's a God in heaven who is sovereign and who is working out his sovereign will. And who's coming again soon in glory and in that moment will say, arise and thresh. Will empower us to be more than conquerors over all the enemies that we face. He will empower us so much so that not even the devil will escape the threshing of his church. It's the remarkable thing that Paul says in Romans 16.20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Not even the devil himself is going to escape this threshing. All the wickedness of the world is going to be pulverized out of existence. And once it was pulverized, the wind would just blow it away. Soon there's going to be nothing left. The devil and all of his dominion will be devoted to destruction. And what will be left? Zion and her king. The Lord of the whole earth and the peace he's created by his might through his people. Remember that picture as well. Those of you who hope in Jesus Christ. That dominion is coming to end. And he's coming soon to restore the former dominion of glory. May everyone here trust in that king and counselor and find life in his name. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the reminder that you are always working out your plan for us, that you have a plan for our good, and that even the trouble you send to us as we live life in this veil of tears, you will turn for our good, that you are able to do all these things because you are almighty God, and that you are willing to do all these things because you are a faithful father to your people. So as we struggle as sojourners and pilgrims in this world looking for that heavenly city that is to come and finding no home here, we might be reminded that you have a plan for Zion to prosper us, to give us hope and a future. We pray that you would help to fill us with that hope and that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, um, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised its shame and is now seated at your right hand. May we remember that if we put our faith and trust in him, we will follow the path that he has led us on, that through the cross will come joy and glory, that it will produce a joy that we can't even imagine here and now. 
So Lord, fill us and sustain us with that hope. Build us up in the holy faith by our Lord Jesus Christ and by his spirit. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.